Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 243. My name is Terry Frost and this week it is musicals. Doing two not too well-known musicals, but you should be able to find them if you really like them. The first one is from 1943 or 1944, I forget which, and it's Cabin in the Sky starring Ethel Waters, Eddie Rochester Anderson and Lena Horne. Then we move on to 1968 for the first musical ever directed by Francis Ford Coppola. There were three, and I'll talk about that later. And that is Finian's Rainbow, starring Fred Astaire, Petula Clark, and Tommy Steele. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and I'll start talking at you about some magical musicals. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciations. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, no, you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how has everybody been? Uh, We've been kind of good here, getting some stuff done and spending a bit of money getting things that we need for the YouTube channels, because Sally has one and I have one. And I've been buying all sorts of weird things like green screen backdrops and ring lights and all sorts of other bits and pieces that we want to kind of make things look good. Been doing a lot of tutorials about making films that don't look shit. And I also got a new piece of software, which cost me about 100 bucks to do the video editing with. And it's a lot simpler than Corel, which I was using before. It's a thing called Filmora. And it's designed specifically for people who want to make proper films and also YouTubers. And there are some nice tutorials on YouTube on how to use the software, uh, things like zip pans and and other effects. So I've been on a big learning curve here. And it's a good thing. Uh, learning new things is always fun. I've, something I've never not liked doing except when it was stuff I didn't want to learn. And this is very much stuff that I do want to learn. So all is good. So I've been on that journey and enjoying it. And I've made a short video clip of me where I basically cloned myself. I've got me on one side of the screen and me on the other side of the screen as well doing the same thing. So that's a lot of fun because split screen stuff with... Basically, I could make myself a short film with me as twins. That's essentially what I'm doing. Um, The first experimental one I did, I put up on Facebook. And to be honest with you, I'm not entirely happy with it because the focus wasn't quite right. And I had to juggle around the um, white balance and the contrast and a few other levels to make it look at all reasonable. But I learned from the mistake and I'm moving on from it. So that's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've kind of gone from talking about movies to actually making essentially little films. And that's kind of a wild ride for me. It very much is. Now, I've put up a couple of YouTube videos in the last couple of weeks as well. I did one on um, my ideas, my five ideas for sequels to the Predator movies, which isn't doing too great at the moment, but we'll see how we go. And also, I went out to Ballarat, which is about 100 kilometers away, to go to a trash and treasure market. And I did a short video about that particular trip, which was very cold and very wet. Um, I got this habit with my trips out into the countryside where I do some YouTube videoing that they're immensely unsuccessful. It's kind of, I've got this genre that these little videos are going into, which basically shows me as a sad sack who doesn't do things very successfully, which as you as podcast listeners know very well that I do uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, So I've got 71 subscribers as of this moment on YouTube. I'm going to post a link to the YouTube channel at the bottom of the show notes on this particular podcast. And there's a reason why. I've got 71, so I need another 29 people before I can get a customized URL for the 
YouTube channel, and it's something that for some reason I really want to do. So if you want to do me a solid and you enjoy listening to the podcast, and if you've listened to it once before, obviously you do, go to the YouTube link for me and just subscribe to it, to the YouTube channel. And when I get above 100, I'll have a nice, neat, concise YouTube URL that I can share. So if you can do me that, that'd be really cool. I am doing a couple of other YouTube videos in the next week or two, at least one of which should be of interest to you. And that is I'm doing my top 10 movie villains from the 1940s. I'm going to go through some decades up to maybe the 1990s. But I'm going to do the 1940s first because that's my arbitrary starting point for no particular reason. I could always backfill and do the 30s if I want to. But I'm doing the 40s and that one's going to be fun because I'm really enjoying it. And I found a trick with YouTube videos. There's a thing called monetization where if you use too much of a commercial person's property, too much music that's um, under copyright or too much of the video that's under copyright, they will demonetize your YouTube video. So if my video went viral, which is not likely to happen, but if it did, what would happen is all the money would go to movie studios. So I'm trying not to do that for fairly obvious reasons. So I found the trick, and the trick is this. You're allowed to use video clips from commercial movies if they're less than three seconds long. So if I do, say, three seconds, to use an example of The Third Man, with Harry Lyme smirking at um, Holly Martins after the light comes on in the apartment above him. That's cool. If I do a prolonged speech like the cuckoo clock speech from The Third Man, that's not cool, and I'll get hit by a copyright infringement thing, and any money that would be generated in future from that particular episode of the podcast, or sorry, of the YouTube, uh, that particular video of the YouTube thing, would go to whoever owns the rights to the third man. So the trick is keep it less than three seconds and jump it around a bit. So I'm learning that, so I'm going to be able to actually use that on the video of the uh, 10 best movie villains in a way that's going to make it look more visually interesting. So I'm looking forward to doing that, and I'll probably be doing that in the next few days. So that's one thing movie-related that I've been onto. The script's about three-quarters written. I'm going to give it a once-over uh, after I write it, and then record it and get it all done and create magic and be my one-man band movie studio the way I have been for the last 20 videos. So what have I been watching? Um, a few different things. Uh, a couple of them even interesting. The first thing I've watched is I watched for the first time rather than watching the AFL football grand final here in Australia, which is a crazy obsession with a lot of people that I find totally inexplicable. I, for the first time, watched Hitchcock's Rebecca with uh, Laurence Olivier, Joan Fontaine and Judith Anderson, who's an Australian actor. And I liked it. Yeah, of course, it's a Hitchcock movie. It's a classic. Rebecca's great. Mrs. Danvers is fucking insane. It's got George Sanders in it as well, which is never a bad thing in any movie. And I recommend it. If you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it for a while, it's worth revisiting and enjoying. It's one of the two movies that Hitchcock did based on novels by Daphne du Maurier, the other one being The Birds, which is based on a story of hers. I haven't read the um, book of Rebecca, but I wouldn't be adverse to doing so having seen the movie. So the next thing I'll watch, which is for a future podcast where I'm going to get a guest on, is the original Mothra from the 1960s. Ishiro Honda directed it. Uh, some fantastic model work. The more I see of Japan, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos of Japanese street scenes and things. The more I appreciate the model work done by the Toho uh, Kaiju movies. And in Mothra, they're particularly good. Uh, you can tell they're models, but the meticulous detail of them still pops. And I love the whole thing with the peanuts, the two little girl, women doing the singing, and the um, the criminals in it. Well, the whole lot kind of works for me. I, I really like that period of Japanese genre movies. And I've got a whole bunch more on the hard drive waiting to go to watch, so I'm going to enjoy that particular cinematic journey. Uh, the other thing I watched, uh, there's two other things I watched. The next one was I watched a 1968 movie called The Detective with 
uh, Frank Sinatra has also got Lee Remick in it, uh, Lloyd Bochner. It has Jacqueline Bassett in a very thankless role in it. And it's about a police detective played by Sinatra who's got Jack Klugman for a sidekick and Al Freeman Jr. who turns up in Finian's Rainbow as well as another detective in uh, the movie. And it's a very gritty um, crime thriller for 1968 with some themes that really weren't addressed in earlier films. There's a, a thing about a closeted gay man there's talk of semen stains and the fact that a murder victim had his penis cut off, which for 68 was kind of full-on stuff. And it's one of the last good roles that Sinatra did as an actor. The movie is based on a novel by Roderick Thorpe and a sequel novel to that um, called I Think Nobody Lives Forever was the basis for a movie we all know and love, Die Hard. If you read the original novel, the character that became John McClane is an older man who used to be a cop but went on to be a security expert. And uh, it's a good read, uh, Roderick Thorpe's novel, which became Die Hard. I'll find the name of it. Just give me a moment to pause this. Yeah, the novel's called Nothing Lasts Forever. And you really should read it if you can get a copy of it. It's definitely worth reading. Uh, and you can see the things that were kept in the movie Die Hard and the things that were discarded, which in some cases were kind of missed opportunities. Then I watched Dan Durier's last movie, a science fiction movie from the 60s called The Bamboo Saucer, which also has John Erickson in it. Um, it has Bob Hastings, who was in Mikhail's Navy, in it, and uh, Bernard Fox, who was an English actor playing kind of stereotypical Englishman. It's about a um, flying saucer that's found in um, a rural village in China. It's actually hidden in a church. And teams of Russian and American agents go to the site under the cover of hiding from the communists. And the two teams go there basically to find, understand, and work out how to steal this flying saucer from outer space. It's low budget, but it kind of works within its budget limitations. It bites off more than it can chew in some ways. And it's not a bad little actioner from the mid-1960s. I don't mind it at all. It was better than I expected it to be, even though the trailer for it is pretty fucking ropey. But, um, yeah, I enjoyed watching that as well and just kind of revisiting low-budget filmmaking from the 60s is always something where you can find ageing. But very fine actors. Dan Durio was a great actor, uh, I've mentioned before on the podcast that he did a fantastic episode of Route 66 as an alcoholic father, which was so good it transcended television. It was just one of those roles where had it been in a movie, it might well have got him an Academy Award nomination at the very least. So that's pretty much what I've been watching as far as movies are concerned. I'm going to be binging a few more. Um, I've got to watch Venom for the radio gig on ABC Radio next week, so that's going to be interesting. I'm going to go see that on Monday with Sal. But um, anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, I'm going to talk about Cabin in the Sky. Bubbles and sweet champagne. 
there's a disclaimer right at the start of the DVD that I've got of Cabin in the Sky, which says this, and it's talking about the film and also the extras on it, so it's using the plural. The films you're about to see are a product of their time. They may reflect some of the prejudices that were commonplace in American society, especially when it came to the treatment of racial and ethnic minorities. These depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. These films are being presented as they were originally created because to do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. While the following certainly does not represent Warner Brothers' opinion in today's society, these images do accurately reflect a part of our history that cannot and should not be ignored. And I agree with that. That's the reason, and that's the kind of disclaimer, that Disney should put out if they ever decide to release Song of the South to streaming or to disc. It puts the whole thing in context, and it explains why it's being released, apart from the fact that they might make some money from it, which is the unstated reason why any movie really is released. Now, I picked up the DVD, I think for $2 at um, a thrift store when I was on my recent trip over to South Australia, which is fantastic. I love the fact that I got it so cheaply. I love it when you get quality films inexpensively because there's another universe somewhere where movies cost according to their quality. So this movie would be $35, $40 easy in that kind of a universe, but in ours, it's underappreciated. Uh, here's the blurb from the back of the DVD I got. Uh, tells the vibrant tale of rascally little Joe, played by Eddie Rochester Anderson, torn between the love of his good wife Petunia, played by Ethel Waters, and the wiles of good time bad girl Georgia Brown, played by Lena Horne. And he's caught in a tug-of-war between emissaries from God and Satan. How can virtue triumph over evil? Well, as Petunia says, sometimes when you fight the devil, you've got to jab him with his own pitchfork. And that's pretty much it. It's just, um, it's a musical. It was based on a stage play of the same name, which was really popular on Broadway in 1940. It was written by Vernon Duke and a guy called John Latouche, both of whom were not of colour. Uh, Vernon Duke was, had a uh, Jewish-Russian background, and John Latouche's people were from the South. But both of them were well-respected. Uh, Latouche, in particular, he uh, wrote some stuff with Duke Ellington, who also appears in this movie. And Latouche also wrote some stuff with Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington, which was kind of cool. So they were very familiar with kind of black folk idiom, with jazz, with the music of black people. And so they weren't coming in as an outsider to kind of inflict white culture onto black stereotypes, which kind of makes this movie a little more interesting, a little more nuanced than it would have been otherwise. The cast is really good too. We've got Ethel Waters playing Petunia, Eddie Anderson, who was known as Rochester on the Jack Benny show, as Little Joe, Lena Horne playing Georgia Brown, as I said. We've got Louis Armstrong turning up as a trumpeter. Rex Ingram's playing the devil's son. Rex Ingram, you'll remember, played the genie in the um, Michael Powell version of Thief of Baghdad in 1940. Uh, we've got John William Sublet, who was known as John W. Bubbles playing Domino Johnson, one of the players who appear in um, a speakeasy kind of place that uh, little Joe is quite fond of. I'll talk more about John William Sublet in a bit because he's a very interesting guy. Mantan Morland turns up. Uh, Bill Bailey, who was the brother of Pearl Bailey, turns up in the scene where Ethel Waters sings Taking a Chance on Love as a Dancer. And Butterfly McQueen turns up playing a character called Lily. She doesn't get a lot of airtime, unfortunately. Uh, the movie was directed by Vincente Minnelli, Eliza Minnelli's father, of course. And Vincente Minnelli went on to write two of my favourite films of all time, The Bad and the Beautiful, and Two Weeks in Another Town. There's one sequence that was directed by Busby Berkeley, uncredited, which I'm going to play for you now because I like it. It's John W. Sublet singing Shine, and it's directed not with the usual Busby Berkeley style because um, his character Domino is singing the song in quite a crowded tables and chairs kind of area of the speakeasy. But uh, Sublet is fantastic in this. He's a real revelation for me as far as black entertainers of that time are concerned. And if you go on YouTube and type in John W. Bubbles, 
you'll see about 16, 17 years later, he also did some kind of documentary TV where he did uh, song and dance bits and became recognised for the quality of his work well after his fame, which started in the late 1920s, went through to the 1940s. But anyway, here is John W. Sublet, known as John W. Bubbles, singing Shine from Cabin in the Sky. What is there about me there? What is there about you what? Makes me feel well dressed. Whatever that is, that's what you is. The same old clothes, shoes and hat. The same old things rearranged. Oh. It's very plain to see just how it happened to be. I put some polish on my sky piece. I made a shoestring into a tie. I cut the corners off the end of my coat so they wouldn't fly. I got my shirt from a silver lining. I got my cane from an old oak tree. And that is just the reason why the folks all nickname me just me. Because my hair's curly And because my teeth are pearly And just because I always wear a smile And suits to dress up in the latest style Gee, I'm glad I'm living Why take troubles all with a smile just because my color shade a wee bit different, maybe. That's why they call me shy. Yeah, John W. Sublet really needs to be noted because he, he had an impact on popular culture way beyond his own direct contribution. First off, in 1920, he taught Fred Astaire how to tap dance. Fred Astaire was already a dancer, but he wasn't a tap dancer. Sublet taught him how to do that, and we're all grateful for that, which probably links the two movies for this podcast together. I hadn't thought about it before right now, but yeah, there's the linkage between the two movies and the podcast. Uh, he also had uh, a long career. He was really appreciated in his lifetime. He uh, appeared in the Newport Jazz Festival in 1979, not long before he died. He died in 1986. And that was his, one of his last public appearances. So he was well-respected and people did recognise the quality of his work. Uh, one of the downsides and one of the things that I find a bit icky about Sublet's legacy is the reason Michael Jackson named his chimp Bubbles was he named him to, in quotation marks, honour John Sublet. And I find that kind of dubious for one pretty direct reason. You don't name an ape after a man, particularly a man of colour. And, of course, Michael Jackson was tone deaf to a lot of things, apart from being a pedophile. And that kind of left me with a bad feeling about that because it seemed, yeah, fair enough, you want to honour a man whose dancing you admired, but to name an ape after a man of colour, even if you are a person of colour, seems to me to be very disrespectful. Let me know what you think. But the movie is great. Uh, it's done on a fairly small budget, of course, and the 
bit, bits of it are a bit stagey. Uh, Eddie Anderson is fantastic as Little Joe. He does play it broadly, but then every character does, mostly because of the stage origins of the piece, but also because of the way black stereotypes were at the time. But it is an opportunity for us to see entertainers we didn't see enough of and who didn't get the breaks that they should have. Lena Horne had a song cut from this, which was later put into one of the That's Entertainment movies, which is a shame. Uh, she was singing a song called Ain't It The Truth while taking a bubble bath, and that was deemed by the studios because studios fucking sucked in a lot of ways in those days. It was MGM, and they didn't like the idea of a black woman in a bathtub singing which is one of those decisions that, yeah, what the fuck? There are a lot of what-the-fuck decisions in any movie over any period of time. I've decided to kind of acknowledge them and then move on from them. But Ethel Waters, I love as Petunia. She's fantastic. And her version of Taking a Chance on Love in this movie is maybe one of the great scenes in a movie of someone really joyfully giving us their art. I love the way she does it, and shes you can fall in love with her just based on that. Uh, there is a break in her singing it where Bill Bailey, as the character called Bill, does his dance number, where he actually does the moonwalk for the first time in any piece of cinema. A lot of people say that Michael Jackson pinched the moonwalk from Fosse, but no, he pinched it from Bill Bailey in Cabin in the Sky. But enough of Michael Jackson. Uh, Lena Hoare does get a song that was retained in the movie called Honey and the Honey Echo, which is pretty good. There's Cabin in the Sky, sung by Ethel Waters as well. Life's Full of Consequences, sung by Eddie Anderson. Um, Happiness is a Thing Called Joe by Ethel Waters. And, of course, John Sublett singing Shine and a couple of other songs. But for the most part, it's the actors that I really liked in this. And even though... The racial stereotypes are there, and we really do have to kind of acknowledge that as the movie does it in that kind of prelude that I read you. I really like it. There, there are so many good people in it. Having like a little speakeasy in a um, black area of town, having Duke Ellington and his orchestra playing in it is a bit of a conceit, but it's great to see it in there and to see Duke Ellington just doing his thing in movies. We did see it a number of times in a number of movies. He also contributed to some soundtracks as well in later years. But uh, nonetheless, it is cool that he's there. This movie wasn't without its problems when it was released as well. I'm just checking out. There's something in um, Wikipedia about this, which is kind of uh, problematic, let's say. Here it is. On the 29th of July, 1943, in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, the film was pulled after the first 30 minutes on order of the local sheriff. A crowd gathered outside the theatre and someone threatened to pull the switch. So there were a lot of movie theatres in the South that refused to show up because it had an all-black cast. Ethel Waters and Rex Ingram, by the way, have been in the original 1940 cast, which means 1939-1940 was quite a busy year for Rex Ingram. He was in England for part of filming of uh, Thief of Baghdad. Then he was back in the United States for the rest of it. Then he was on Broadway doing cabin in the sky it's interesting just to follow sometimes the path that various actors took at various times to see how much they traveled and how much work they put in in a particular year and uh, that's just one that popped up for me but just to do a bit of a summary for cabin in the sky it's of its time it shows some classic entertainers doing what they did best and it's quite unlike any other musical you're going to see. Stormy Weather is very much a different kind of story and it's told in a different kind of way and it has that wonderful finish with the Nicholas Brothers which Cabin in the Sky doesn't have anywhere near that kind of polish and that movie kind of look about it. But it's a great piece of cinema and it's an important historical piece of cinema if only to show some of these entertainers at their best right at the peak of their skills and talents so i recommend you see it uh it's a like i said it's of its time but it's still a very fine movie so anyway i'm going to take a break now i want to get back we're doing 1968 and the weirdly socialistic 1940s musical finian's rainbow 
Film for the screen by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Fred Astaire, Petula Clark, Don Franks, and Al Freeman Jr. That's Finian's Rainbow. Look to Fred Astaire. Look, look, look to the rainbow. Follow it over the hill and stream. It's a pot of gold. And you stole it. I never stole it. I borrowed it. But whom did you borrow it from? Why do you want to know? So we can lend it right back to him, that's why. Well, it's impossible. Why not? Well, because he's not mortal. You killed him. Look to Patula Clark. How are things in Glockamara? Is that little brook still leaping there? Does it still run down to Donny Cove? Through Killy Bakes, Kilkerry, and Kildare? Come on, Arrest show me what you're made of! I'm only the second deputy. You're the first deputy. Sheriff, quit stalling the rest up. Witchcraft? Well, you don't really believe I'm a witch, do you? I wanna laugh like a loon. It's that old devil moon. To Tommy Steele. When I'm not near the girl I love, I love the girl I'm near. Fairyland was never like this. Something sweet, something sort of grandish sweeps my soul. When thou art near, my heart feels so sugar candish, my head feels so ginger beer. <laughs> Look to Don Franks. I'm busting with bliss, and I'll kiss your hand if this isn't love. Look to Al Freeman Jr. Look to Keenan Wynn. Look to Finian's rainbow. Finian's Rainbow is a movie that I didn't like when I first saw it for a couple of reasons, one of which is to do with um, racial identity, let's say. But it grew on me the second time I watched it, which was recently. I picked it up in Sydney when I was on the prowl for movies uh, at a place called Hum in King Street in Newtown, and I found it. I thought, yeah, give it a go. It's, it's going to cost me 15 20 bucks to get it. It's got a, a commentary track by the director, Francis Ford Coppola, which will be interesting, and it might go good for the podcast. And sure enough, it is good for the podcast. Interestingly enough, Coppola was only 28 at the time that he made this movie. He'd already made a number of films. In 1963, he'd done Dementia 13, a very small film that was filmed in Ireland. Then he did the movie, which kind of was a breakthrough for him, a film in 1966 called You're a Big Boy Now, which was kind of a romantic comedy, and it would have been the movie that got him the gig for Warner Brothers doing Finian's Rainbow. Cobbler's commentary track is really great because he goes back and looks through the movie and sees what he would have done differently. There are bits that I would have liked to have found out more about that don't really get much of an airing from him. Um, I wanted to find out why he's filmed certain scenes in certain ways, all that kind of thing. And he didn't kind of go into that. He was more self-analytical. But that in itself is kind of okay. It's uh, you, With commentary tracks, you take what the person doing the commentary wants to give you. And what Coppola gives us is kind of interesting. He knew he was out of his depth. He really did go back and analyse it. And he was the person who instigated the release of this movie on DVD through his company, American Zoetrope. So all credit to him for 
kind of owning up to what was for him a career and a financial failure. But it was kind of a daunting task. It didn't have a fantastically large budget, three and a half million. It made it 11.6, but it was still perceived as a failure for some reason. It was a big tentpole movie, and tentpole movies are what we had before summer blockbusters. They were long films, and this one is long. It's 145 minutes, so it's well over two hours. And it's one of those old-fashioned movies that has uh, an overture at the start, where they play the overture music, and it also has an interval in the middle because of the length of the film. These days, you just got to wear it. Cross your neck, legs if you need a piss, and just go with it with long movies. But in those days... There was a break in the middle and people go get popcorn, have a piss, come back in and see the second half of the movie. Usually that was the third act. After things go wrong and everything's going disastrous, they cut to an interval and then you get the third act where everything ends up being okay. Now the movie is kind of a a whimsical fantasy kind of film. Uh, It starts in a place called Rainbow Valley in a state of America they call Mississippi, which is Mississippi and Kentucky put together. New Fort Knox. It's uh, the town, the valley is full of black and white sharecroppers who grow tobacco, who are living in an agrarian socialist utopia in a sense. Everybody's um, friends with each other. There's not any kind of racial tensions at that level. Uh, And this in itself was a socialist musical when it first was done on Broadway in 1947. It was about people getting together and about uh, the demarcation between rich and poor it was about race relations and racist southerner senators in fact there's a southern senator in the movie whose name is a little bit funny senator billboard rawkins in the movie played by keenan win uh i should actually go through the cast before i go any further uh the cast i like uh we've got fred astaire who plays finian mclonigan who is a kind of roguish old irishman who, with his daughter Sharon, played by Petula Clark, has travelled across America for two years to find Rainbow Valley. And there's a montage at the start of the movie where they get some um, body doubles and a second unit team to wander across America. They go past Mount Rushmore, they go across to San Francisco. You see them basically tramping their way across the US in all kinds of weather conditions to eventually end up in Rainbow Valley. And it gives it a really kind of picturesque look. The cinematography is great. The second unit cinematography is good. Um, they're all filmed from behind, so you can't tell it's not really Fred Astaire and Petula Clark. Would have cost them a fortune to get the two stars to travel to 15 different places across America for this scene. Uh, the idea was Coppola's. It wasn't a part of the movie, but he wanted to give the movie uh, a realistic basis, which is kind of a little bit odd because one of the big plot points in the movie is that Finian has stolen the pot of gold from a leprechaun called Og, for some reason, played by Tommy Steele, the English uh, musical comedian. Now, Tommy Steele's problematic in this movie. Of all of the characters in this film, he's the one I like least because he's got more teeth than a zipper and he plays it really broadly. He plays it in a musical style, whereas cinema is a lot more intimate than playing to 500 people people in a palade in the palladium but tommy Steele doesn't kind of pull it back and doesn't nuance the character very much he's um yeah he plays it very broadly and it kind of doesn't work and coppola admits this he says tommy Steele with tommy Steele, you get what you get uh, but it really it does kind of change the movie originally they were looking at somebody like robert morse which would have been cool because i like robert morse and he'd just come off the success of how to succeed in business without really trying. And I think he would have done it really nicely. He had a kind of, he was more puckish in a way than Tommy Steele ever was. Of course, we have Petula Clark, who was really a big thing in those days because of her big hit with Downtown. And for a few years before, she'd lived in France and done some really nice albums in French with some kind of nuanced and complex music. Some of her best work was done in France when she was um, living with a guy in France and living there and had learned to speak the language and was putting out some really interesting tracks. Uh, her love interest is a character called Woody Mahoney, who in the original play was a union organiser, but in this one is just kind of a ne'er-do-well deal maker. 
played by a Canadian actor called Don Franks, who's really kind of good, except for one particular thing. His hairpiece is really fucking bad. Fred Astaire's is a bit better, but Don Franks' rug in this one is problematic. Once you notice it, it draws attention to itself. But having said that, I think he's good as the character. He sings really well. He has a fantastic duet with Petula Clark singing that old Devil Moon, which is one of the... Yeah, hang on, let me go back a step. One of the problems with the movie, and I'll come back to that old Devil Moon in a moment. One of the problems with the movie is that some of the scenes are filmed very realistically, but there are scenes, particularly with the Pot of Gold and with uh, the romance between Sharon and Woody, which are filmed on leftover sets from Camelot. There's a woodland set that was used in the movie Camelot. And it's a really nice set. I I love it. It's kind of really a complicated uh, stage set. It's filmed indoors, of course. And one of the problems they had was because there's lots of grassy knolls and little rivulets and bridges and things like that. They used real turf on it. So every couple of days, they'd have to tear up all the turf and put down new turf because it'd go brown from lack of water and lack of um, sunlight. So that was a big problem for Coppola. But the set itself is pretty impressive. But they cut from realistic things filmed on location at the um, Water Brothers Ranch to stuff that was filmed on the soundstage. And there is a bit of a disconnect there, so allowing for that. Now, let me get back to that old Devil Moon. I love this track. It's one of my favourite tracks in the movie, probably my favourite, because they both sing together. They do a really nice duet. There's a nice chemistry between the two actors. And they're kind of laying on this little grassy hillside very, very close together. And a couple of films that with a really nice intimacy and the sensualness that you don't really expect in a kind of fluffy musical. Tonally, it builds the relationship. You've nailed it that, yeah, these two people are in love right from that scene. So it does form an important function in the movie. And I really like it. I like the kind of closeness. I like the way that Coppola framed it. And he never mentioned it in the commentary track that uh, he talked about the two actors. And he said that he liked the songs in all of the movie. In fact, he does sing a little bit of one of the songs in the commentary track. But... One of the things that I loved about it is that intimacy that he builds between the two characters. And in this blatantly artificial um, soundstage, that really kind of makes the movie work for me. It's one of the bits that made me reevaluate the film. So, of course, Og the leprechaun wants his gold back, but uh, Finian's buried it somewhere. And one of the problems is if you stand where the gold is buried, you can get three wishes if you stand on top of it. And so there's a few problems that are caused by that. Um, One of them is Senator Billboard Rawlins, played very broadly by Kingdom when he's having a bit of fun with this. And he um, pisses off Sharon. And Sharon, while she's standing on the buried pot of gold, tells him, because of his racist utterances, tells him he should find out what it's like to be black. And then suddenly Senator Rawlins is black. But the problem with that is they play it with Keenan Wynn in blackface, which is a little bit of a problem from a modern point of view. The history of blackface, of course, I've talked about in uh, other podcasts here, makes it really problematic. Now, they've done revivals of Finian's Rainbow in more recent years, and they've done something really interesting to take care of that plot line of Senator Rawlins becoming a black man and understanding and learning what it was to be a black man in American society at the time. And this is kind of set vaguely in the 1940s. They get two actors to play the roles, one white actor to play Senator Rawlins and then a black actor to play Senator Rawlins after he is magically transformed into a person of colour. And that works. Because in the most recent one, which I think is 2006 was the last revival on Broadway, which was very successful for a movie, this uh, for a play this kind of light and fluffy. It was really successful. And what they did was, when he became the other guy, the black guy, they played the character as a kind of 
Cab Calloway, Hepcat kind of character, which really works for me. It's it's an idea that I'd love to see. Someone should remake this movie just so I can see the transition for for Senator Rawlings from uptight white bubba um, racist senator to a person of colour and make him a hep cap with a zoot suit and a wide brim hat with the feather in it, all that kind of stuff. I would love to see that. But this being 1968, they don't do that. They get keen to win in blackface. Which leads to one of the coolest songs in the movie, which is kind of problematic. And the funny thing about that is Senator Rawlins ends up being part of a four-man singing group called the Passion Pilgrim Gospeliers who sing basically about religious tracts and things like that. Now, the other actors in there are kind of cool. There's Jester Hairston, who had been sporting life in one version of Porgy and Bess back in the day, an actor called Roy Glenn, and another one called Avon Long. And they do this really cool song called The Begat. Now, I didn't like The Begat the first time I heard it because of the blackface thing and having Ken and Wynn just kind of singing in the background with these three black actors in this old jalopy they're driving along the countryside in uh doing the big eight i'm going to play you the big eight because i kind of like the song and i like the um idea of the bible being just basically about adam and eve learning how to screw and everybody in the world being caused by screwing even though that isn't explicitly what they say so i'll play that for you now and i might end after the um credits at the end of the podcast I'll play you Don Franks and Petula Clark singing that old Devil Moon, but just let me get the big get out of the way. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. We got it. The Lord made Adam, the Lord made Eve. He made them both a little bit naive. They lived as free as the summer breeze, without pajamas and without chemise. Until they stumbled on the apple trees. Then she looked at him. And he looked at her. And they knew immediately what the world was fair. He said, give me my cane. He said, give me my hat. The time has come to begin the begat. The begat, the begat. So the begat came and the begat they begat the people who believed in stars. Lordy, lordy, how they did begat. How they be, be, began. Even more than that, when, when the begat got together on the par, the begat the daughters of the D.A.R., the begat the babies of the bourgeoisie, who begat the misbegotten D.I.P. They begat, they begat. It was pleasing the Jezebel, pleasing the room. It pleased the League of Women shoppers in Duluth. Though the movie censors tried the facts to hide, the moviegoers up and multiplied. Lordy, lordy, how they multiply. How they multiply. How they multiply. Soon it swept the world. Every land had lingo. It became the rage. It was bigger than bingo. The white begat, the red begat, the folks who should have stood in bed begat, the Greeks begat, the Swedes begat, why, even Britishers and Tweed begat, and naughty, naughty, what the scenes begat. The laughter Lithuanians begat, Scranton, Pennsylvanians begat, strict vegetarians begat, honorary Aryans begat. Starting from Genesis, they begat heroes and menaces. Begat backfill buster us. Begat income tax adjuster us. Begat was bachelor and bachelor to begat, and sometimes a bachelor. He begat. It didn't matter which ways they begat. Sons of a bitch ways begat. So bless them all. So bless them all. Who go to bat? Who go to bat?
That's a nice sequence because it's done in montage and uh, you see the guys travelling across America in the car and having a great time singing and stuff like that. It's got a nice vitality to it. Uh, I believe that the orchestration for that particular piece was by Francis Ford Coppola's father, Carmine. Now, the other thing is, there's a few different things. Uh, there's another character called Susan the Silent who is the sister of the character Woody in the film. And she's played by a young dancer called Barbara Hancock and dances fantastically well. She doesn't speak, but she's um, she kind of communicates through dance and people who know her interpret it. It's a little bit of a conceit, but it kind of works nicely. And she does some fantastic dance and gets to dance a little bit with Fred Astaire, which is great. Uh, Petula Clark's really good in this one. Al Freeman Jr. plays Howard, who is a business partner of Woody. And they're trying to cross mint with tobacco leaves so they can make mentholated tobacco, which is a little kind of bit of business that Coppola himself came up with. He says it was a bit of a dumb idea, but it kind of filled out a couple of bits that were cut out of the movie because they didn't really play well to 1968 compared to 1947 when the original play was done. Now, the other bit about it, which I found kind of interesting, is that there was going to be in 1954, an animated film adaptation, which is being done by a studio. Uh, the voice cast was really fantastic. Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Oscar Peterson, Louis Armstrong, Barry Fitzgerald, Jim Backus, and Ella Logan, and David Wayne from the original production. The problem was that the financing went totally to shit because the director of the proposed animated movie, a guy called John Hubley, and Yip Harburg, who wrote the music for Finian's Rainbow, refused to testify before the House on american Activities Committee. So the production failed totally, which is a big shame because it would have been in an interesting animated film, depending on the style in which it was done, of course, uh, to see that with Frank Sinatra doing the, some songs. In fact, he did record one of the songs from the movie for another album. And that one was, he said, scrolling down here to the songs. And I know this is fascinating for you. When I'm not near the girl I love. And of course, being Frank Sinatra, he does a much better version of that than Tommy Steele does in the movie. But one, I think one of the most important things about this film is it's not like a traditional musical, even of the time. Around the same time, there were musicals coming out like Camelot. Dr. Doolittle was a musical around the same time in one of those long tempo kind of movies. Um, with music by Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus. So there were a few things that came out then, but this is towards the end of the era of the big movie musicals. And this one doesn't play the same as the others. I think that having uh, Coppola as director had some interesting choices. There's a scene right near the start where we're kind of introduced to the character of Woody, who was named after Woody Guthrie because he was, in original, the original he was a union organiser and Woody Guthrie, of course, was a big union guy. And he's doing a... Um, there's a, a great action sequence of him on a train heading towards Rainbow Valley. And there are some great ways that um, Coppola films it, for instance. He has the uh, camera on the track and the train comes right at it and then we see the camera move through the train until it gets to the back door where Woody's standing. It's a really interesting scene. Uh, it's a little bit shaky because they didn't have steady cams or gimbals in those days. See, I know about steady cams and gimbals now because of YouTube. Uh, but it kind of has a nice vitality to it. There, uh, there are some really nice sets for the cottages in Rainbow Valley, which I like a lot. It was also Fred Astaire's last musical, and so has a bit of a um, kind of end-of-an-era feel about it. And there is a nice goodbye to Finian, which, in a sense, acts for us as an audience as a goodbye to the musical career of Fred Astaire, which is done quite poignantly and nicely at the end of the film because I think that you know Fred Astaire was almost 70 at the time. He does do some great dance sequences. There's some dance sequences on a loading dock with some boxes, which kind of works and gives us some of the Fred Astaire magic. One of the problems they had with the movie was because um, they were changing aspect ratios and trying to make it into 70 mil, some of the prints and the way that they were um, printed cut the feet off Fred Astaire and the other dancers in some scenes. 
And a couple of points is that he's restored to a different aspect to ratio. I think um, 2.3 to 1 rather than the really wide one they had in the original so that uh, the top and the bottom of the screen weren't cut off and we get to see more of Fred Astaire's dancing in this. But one of the big criticisms of the movie at the time was that they cut off the feet of Fred Astaire while he was dancing and that wasn't the way that Coppola originally filmed it. And he was quite upset about it at the time and when he got the opportunity to put out the DVD release that was remediated but uh, there was that problem and also Coppola wasn't a guy who was trained or or really knew how to film a musical particularly so there are some scenes where you think why did you do that not this and a couple of other bits and pieces but overall it works Um, apparently according to Petula Clark as well a lot of her, she and a whole bunch of the other cast members were smoking marijuana during the filming of the movie, which um, I suppose helped make the um, the environment kind of mellow and uh, and kind of fun, which uh, I kind of like the idea of doing a musical with Fred Astaire where some of the people are stoned while they're doing it. Uh, but it, it does work for me. On rewatching, it really kind of has a uniqueness about it that makes it charming and interesting uh you've got that nice rapport between the romantic leads which really works for me tommy Steele sticks out like a railroad spike in a birthday cake but he does his own thing and it's like he's in a different movie he's in a stage production of finian's rainbow rather than a movie one uh, i don't think he ever truly adapted to the film medium we have a look at him in things like half a sixpence and a couple of the other things he did, you've got the same kind of mugging and the same kind of over-the-topness that kind of doesn't play very well on a big on a cinema screen. But allowing for that, the rest of it kind of works nicely. Uh, I mentioned the rug on Dom Franks, which kind of doesn't work. But I like the fact that uh, MGM gave Coppola a chance to do this movie. And he did two musicals later. He did one from the heart, which again is one that people are a bit mixed about. And also you can consider in a lot of ways his movie, which again was unsuccessful, The Cotton Club, as being a musical as well. But if you're into musicals and if you haven't seen it or you've seen it a long time ago and you maybe didn't like it, maybe it's time to revisit Finian's Rainbow because there's enough there that's interesting for me at least. So I watched it twice. I watched it once straight I watched it once with Coppola's commentary, and it is a lovely, charming little movie. Uh, Ford is fuck yeah, but still a charming little musical movie. And I know a lot of the people who support me on Patreon are big into musicals, so shout out to Miss Jane amongst other people. Um, and yeah, revisiting it isn't bad. Uh, let me see, when was this released? I think it was released about 2006. And I don't believe it's an Australian pressing. I might have got an American pressing of this. So you may have to kind of scrounge around. If you, Here's my tip. I don't know if I've done this one before. But if you can't find them, the first place to look for it, if you're not in the US, is probably eBay. Because there are some people, particularly in the UK, who will export... Um, UK pressings of things to Australia with free postage. There are a couple of different companies that do that and we get some really nice quality DVDs and Blu-rays at a reasonable price and um, with free postage. Uh, of course, if you're in any country and you don't have a region-free DVD player, you need to get one before they stop making DVD players because you're going to miss out on a lot of shit if you don't. But yeah, um, Finian's Rainbow, it works for me, and I really did enjoy it. So that's about it for this time around. As I said, I'm going to play that Old Devil Moon. uh, Sorry, Old Devil Moon. It's not that Old Devil Moon. Old Devil Moon. After I do the credits for the podcast, which are there, of course, to honour the people who support the podcast financially for as little as a dollar US per month. And you know you've got a dollar by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I am looking in the next few months probably to doing some Patreon-only content. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I'm kind of thinking towards that, where I'll release things on Patreon, and then maybe a month later put them into the public. 
So it might be worth kind of getting in early if you're interested in that kind of thing. So anyway, take care of yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch Finian's Rainbow and Cabin in the Sky because you'll enjoy both of them, I hope. And I will be back next week with a Martian Driving podcast in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. And so I'm going to leave you with the credits now. And then I'm going to leave you with Old Devil Moon, which is a nice version of it. I really do enjoy it. So take care of yourselves and I'll be back soon. And here are the credits. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema podcast and Martian Driving podcast. Done in a style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Suddenly, something in your eyes I see Soon begins bewitching me It's that old devil moon That you stole from the skies It's that old devil moon In your eyes You and your glance make this romance Too hot to handle Stars in the night blazing their light Can't hold a candle to your eyes you got me flying high and wide on a magic carpet ride Full of butterflies inside I wanna cry, wanna croon Wanna laugh just like a loon It's that old devil moon In your eyes at you and glory be something in your eyes I see soon begins bewitching me it's that old devil moon that you stole from the skies it's that old Make this romance too hot to handle Stars in the night blazing their light Can't hold a candle to your razzle-dazzle You've 
got me flying high and wide on a magic carpet ride full of butterflies inside I wanna cry I wanna croon I want to laugh like a loon it's that old devil Just when I think I'm free as a dove Oh, devil moon, deep in your eyes blinds me 